15 to go in the game. Ronovo takes it away. Radicalio's pass. Unger's got the puck behind the goal line. Out in front. It is kicked aside again by Davidson. And that's what he's been doing all night long. Two on one. Talavis in front. Talavis missed it. Goaltender tripped as he went by. 155 remaining in the game. And actually, it's a sad scene here in Atlanta right now. This may be the last hockey game played in Atlanta for a long time. 1.42 to go. They tell us that there are large corporations down here that may want to keep the Atlanta Flames in Atlanta, and I certainly hope so. They should, Bill. This is a big league town, there's no doubt about it. This team has been very, very unfortunate in playoffs. They have only won two playoff games in their history. They have never survived, of course, the final round, the first round. Greshner has the puck. Headman to Dugay, he couldn't reach it. That'll be for an icing call. Nope. Goaltender played it. 1.28 to go. Eddie Johnstone. Flames are still giving it a shot here with 118 to go, but there's just no time left now with the three-goal lead for the Rangers. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well now, how are you doing, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon, and of course you have found Good Seats Still Available. The curious little podcast that's devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for finding us. How are you? Great to have you along. And, um, well, you know, we uh, we spin the wheel this week and we're going to go down south to one of the uh, great cities in this country. Uh, the heart of the south, shall we say, the capital of the south. That's Atlanta, Georgia. Or Atlanta, GA, uh, as is otherwise known. Or the ATL, however you want to sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, nickname the uh, metropolis that is the Atlanta metropolitan area. And um, we're going to get into, I, I guess, a story of uh, lack of a better word uh, is futility uh, historically of the pro sports experience in Atlanta, save for a few bright moments of exception. A lot of the professional sports histories, plural, in the great city of Atlanta, has been, frankly, on the losing side of things. Uh, not a whole lot of championships in the major sports and the teams that have domiciled themselves over the years in Atlanta. And that's um, kind of the malaise, kind of the the topic, kind of the dynamic that we're going to get into uh, with our guest this week, Clayton Truder, who's got a tremendously awesome book. I've had the opportunity to read it in electronic form. It's not yet available. It will be soon. But I will tell you, when it comes out, this is a book that you sports fans and especially listeners of the show are going to just eat up. It's 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 well-documented. Uh, it's excellently researched. And the, the uh, information in there is just awesome. Uh, and uh, you're going to learn a whole lot about the sports situation professionally in Atlanta. It's called Loserville. How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. 
And fittingly, uh, there's a uh, a lovely picture of a, uh, at the time, modern-looking Atlanta-Fulton County Stadium, no longer with us. Hence, another entree into our little exploration. It's why it qualifies, later replaced by the Georgia Dome, and then that itself replaced by the uh, Mercedes-Benz extravaganza that exists today, gorgeous facility. Um, but uh, this is a story of uh, just, I, 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 futility is the word I keep coming back to. Uh, if you're a sports fan in Atlanta and uh, have been there for some extended period of time, I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, it kind of really gets going in earnest in 1966 with the arrival uh, of both the Major League Baseball uh, Braves from Milwaukee uh, and a brand new NFL franchise at the time, the Falcons, the Atlanta Falcons. Um, and uh, uh, being domiciled in a brand new uh, built Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, we'll get into some of the uh, shenanigans behind that and the sort of the uh, the sort of uh, 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 twists and turns and the intrigue and the sort of uh, 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 how that stadium got built and the uh, the phantom franchise that was rumored that was uh, interested if if only for a stadium to be built. Uh, that's a, certainly a big part of the story. But um, while we uh, celebrate the Braves being in the World Series uh, this very year, this very week. And uh, of course, though, not having won, uh, well, not having been in the World Series since 1999, of course, uh, but not having won, they've only won once uh, World Series since they've been in Atlanta. And that was the great season of 1995. And that's really it for the Atlanta Braves. And then you look at the the Falcons, uh, who have been in Atlanta the same amount of time, two Super Bowl appearances. Uh, only in their history since 1966 uh, and losing to the Broncos in 98 and um, quite painfully in overtime losing to the Patriots uh, in 2016. Not a title to be found there. And of course, what about basketball? Well, hey, you know, the uh, the Atlanta Hawks, right, moved uh, to Atlanta uh, s- shortly after the arrival of those first two teams I just mentioned. Uh, as uh, indoor sports uh, sort of looked uh, upon Atlanta as po- some as some promised land, and St. Louis, where the Hawks were domiciled, moved from after ni- the 1968 season. Um, it was looked upon as maybe almost a sure thing because they were doing really well. Um, they were first in the Western Division in St. Louis, and uh, in the 68-69 first season as the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, they made it all the way to the division finals, and then they uh, made the division finals again in the following season. And it kind of never really got that good for years and years and years and years. Uh, you could make the argument they were really not uh, uh, tremendously competitive until, again, until the uh, 1993-94 season, uh, with Lenny Wilkins at the helm. Um, but the but the uh, the the Hawks have uh, also been uh, quite futile in their pursuit of NBA basketball glory. Not a, uh, not, a, not a title there either. And don't even get me started about hockey, right? We know the sto- some of the stories about hockey in Atlanta. You can't even keep a franchise there, right? We had a, a tremendous uh, conversation with Dan Bouchard, uh, one of the uh, key members, the cog, if you will, of, at the goal uh, in the goalie crease for the Atlanta Flames before they moved to Calgary. And, and if you haven't listened to that episode, you've got to 
stop what you're doing and listen to it because that's that is a uh, a very honest and raw and it's sometimes emotional um, conversation about the the history of that franchise. Some of it uh, very fond in his memory, but uh, the way it went down and got out of town uh, still leaves a a raw and bitter taste in his and a lot of other people's mouths. The Thrashers came about uh, a number of years later, and they couldn't hold on for too much longer. And dare I say that neither of those teams came anywhere close to Stanley Cup championship glory. No, the the only real uh, winning franchises, aside from those exceptions for the Braves, and um, uh, really that's you know kind of kind of it is uh, in soccer of all of all things, the Atlanta Chiefs. Uh, as we get into our conversation, somewhat uh, surprisingly, in 1968, yet another new pro franchise, but arguably the North American Soccer League, not sort of considered anywhere near the big four, so to speak, right? They won the championship in their uh, second year of existence, the first year, actually, of the North American Soccer League's existence. And a little asterisk there, you can go deep and find out as to why, because there were two leagues that... Uh, ran beforehand and then merged and became a, a, the NASL in 1968. But the Chiefs won that. They also runners-up, by the way, in 1971. Uh, of course, it didn't much matter because they were only drawing five, six, four, three thousand fans per game. Um, but uh, as you'll hear in our conversation with Clayton in a little while, the legacy of what the Chiefs sort of uh, uh, brought to the table in the 60s and 70s actually uh, came back and rebounded very, very um you know, strongly uh, with the uh, championships or the championship uh, of today's uh, Atlanta United uh, soccer team. And and what a team that has become, a franchise that just right out of the gate um, has been, I think, a surprise to a lot of people, both in terms of attendance and, and on-field performance. And, um, uh, and of course, having won the whole thing a couple of years back, um, but that is kind of really it when you get into quote unquote championship seasons in Atlanta pro sports, we're going to get into that topic, the, uh, somewhat odd and, uh, misshapen, uh, discussion, if you will, of Atlanta professional sports. As we talk about loserville, that's the name of the book with Clayton Truder coming up, uh, in just a few moments time, you're going to, you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, if you're an Atlanta sports fan, I think you're going to even enjoy it as well, because I think you'll, you'll sort of understand some of the the dynamics at play uh, as to why this is sort of the case. That said, right, I think it, the the future of pro sports in Atlanta has never been brighter with the facilities and and uh, and the, uh, the 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 money and the uh, the the commitment uh, to uh, f- uh, buildings and 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 the, the brands and the teams and the leagues. Um, but still, on the field and on the ice and on the uh, court performances. Um, you could say that perhaps unlike any other city in the United States, there is no uh, metro area that is more due for championship glory uh, than the uh, great city of Atlanta, Georgia. We're going to get into it. And I, that clip at the beginning kind of sets the tone. Um, uh, and that was uh, from the New York Rangers uh, television broadcast Um Featuring uh, Jim uh, Gordon, the great Jim Gordon used to call not only Ranger games, but uh, New York Giants football games, the old WNEW AM in New York City. And Bill Chadwick uh, lamenting as the uh, four game sweep uh, by the Rangers of the Flames in the preliminary round of the Stanley Cup playoffs 
that season, uh, 1979, 1980. Uh, that game was April 12th, 1980. And that was from, I'm guessing that was WOR. There was no extra W there. WOR television, Channel 9 uh, uh, in Secaucus, New Jersey, of all places, uh, the home of the, uh, the television broadcast home of the Rangers. Uh, and uh, they were already uh, sensing that uh, not only was it uh, the, going to be the last game of the Flames' existence, but um, uh, a sad sort of commentary because, uh, as you'll hear with Clayton in a few minutes, uh, it really the, the team actually was pretty well supported. Uh, you know, there were that last game uh, in the Omni, a uh, crucial facility in this story, uh, there's was over 12,000 people. The Omni, I think, sat maybe 15, 15, five, something like that. Um, so the Flames really actually were, were uh, strangely, uh, perhaps one of the better supported teams uh, in Atlanta pro sports history. But um, as we've heard with Dan Bouchard and some other, other folks, um, there are some other reasons as to why those Flames uh, never uh, stuck around long enough. Well, we're going to lament together uh, in just a few moments with Clayton, Clayton Truder, just, uh, just a moment and uh, stay tuned for that. You're going to love it. But now why not celebrate at least let's try to make some, uh, some lemonade out of these lemons, shall we? Um, today's sponsor, we're going to go to oldschoolshirts.com. Why? Well, oldschoolshirts.com, not only the best shirts you're going to find out there from all kinds of, not only pro sports teams and leagues and defunctness, but things like uh, movie theaters and retail chains and radio stations and uh, bars and and, and other uh, entertainment establishments that you just may remember from your various uh, uh, experiences in places all over the country uh, and uh, to uh, uh, enshrine them and to memorialize them in beautiful, high quality T-shirt form. And a great case in point, you could, there's tons of cities, tons of teams, tons of leagues, tons of uh, outlets that are represented here. But as an example, go to oldschoolshirts.com and go into the top section there and just uh, and click around. You can click collect collections or sports by league. There's even a mystery tea section where they, you can take your chances and pay a low price. But the, go to the cities uh, section and then just scroll into Atlanta. And my, oh my, you'll find a few shirts just that are perfect for remembering this particular episode. Jeez, it's, it's perfect. It's almost like they were reading our minds. How about an Atlanta Fulton County Stadium shirt? Fantastic. I got wrecked at the Georgia Dome. We got a shirt for that too. The Atlanta Apollos Soccer Club. Do you remember them? Well, sure. You can get them all in, in, in t-shirt form at oldschoolshirts.com. Uh, let's see. There's a few other uh, great ones. So I just want to call out here. Of course, there's an Atlanta 1996 Olympics uh, shirt in there, but there are a couple of Atlanta Flames shirts there. They're just great. A couple of different sort of looks. One's in red, one's in black. There's an Atlanta Thrasher shirt there. Of course, can't forget the Thrashers. And the Atlanta Chiefs, of course, uh, in a great, uh, the original logo uh, in t-shirt form. The Atlanta Black Crackers in the Negro Leagues, absolutely all there. And tons of, even an Atlanta Legends shirt. Yes, you AAF fans, you uh, Alliance of American Football fans, you could find a shirt there too. And many, many more, not just for Atlanta, but all cities and places around the country. And it's a trove of goodness that you will find at oldschoolshirts.com. They're affordable, they're high quality, and they're endlessly fascinating. You're going to want a whole bunch for your uh, for your collection and for your wearing pleasure. And of course, as you add those shirts to your uh, shopping cart, make sure, make sure that you get this promo code in that 
uh, in that box where it says, where's the code? And that code is good seats. Good seats. The promo code at oldschoolshirts.com. You're going to enjoy, courtesy of us and P.F. Wilson and his friends at oldschoolshirts.com, 10% off all of your purchases. So go there early, go there often, as we say, oldschoolshirts.com. We love oldschoolshirts.com. It may be, I think, the oldest sponsor that we've had, and by uh, my oh my, probably one of the best. Uh, we thank them for their support of the show. We thank you for checking them out uh, and uh, early and often, and the holidays are coming, so wink, wink, nod, nod. And let's get into our chat now. Another great thing to possibly buy, or at least put in your pre-order bucket, is the book we're going to be talking about coming up right now. The book is called Loserville. We're going to talk about Atlanta sports and why it's so futile. It has been so futile for the many years since the mid-60s when Atlanta really kind of upped its professional game and started to play at the highest level. Why is it that Atlanta teams have never really sort of cracked into the uh, the upper echelon and, and, and multiple championships? We're going to get into it. Let's talk. Here's our conversation with Clayton Truder. We had just a couple of days ago. Please sit back and, as always, enjoy. There's no question in my mind that uh, you, one even looks at the uh, the cover of this book and one sees a picture of the old Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And I think most people, both not only inside Atlanta uh, sports uh, dumb, but also certainly outside of it, um, look at that stadium and a picture of that. And I think very quickly relate to the thematic that you sort of lay out in, in your book. But before we get to it, give us a sense, give our audience a sense of how you sort of ideated this topic. Uh, because the title, even of itself, Loserville, um, uh, it, it matters because it, it's not something you just create out of thin air. No, the title comes from a 1975 series of columns in the Atlanta Constitution. They had an editor at the time named Louis Grizzard, who went on to be something like the Garrison Keeler of the South, this kind of upmarket humorist. And he frequently would do these kind of splashy series to headline the paper. And in July 1975, he did a series called Loserville, which detailed the futility both on the field and at the box office of Atlanta's teams in their first decade in the major leagues. It's 1966 when both the Braves and the Falcons uh, finally arrive and start playing in town. And 10 years later, civic leaders have had all these aspirations that these teams would be a source of prestige, that they would um, bring people together, that it would, um, that they'd be these out of the box successes, but it didn't really happen that way. There hadn't been a lot of expansion cities yet in pro sports, let alone a city like Atlanta that got teams in all four of the major professional sports leagues so quickly so the aspirations of the civic leaders had not turned down at that point certainly and it took many years for them to do so you know that's very interesting because as we've been doing this show for geez almost five years now and, and when we talk about uh things about like league uh expansions and and um, uh relocations and that kind of stuff and baseball in particular right probably the most uh, uh i guess sort of the, the the first kind of to sort of grasp uh, that there was a nation beyond the Northeast and the Midwest uh, in the 1950s and beyond. Um, I, I get the sense that um, Atlanta, for most people who were unfamiliar with sort of the, uh, the, the, the city and the environment and the story of, of Atlanta, right? Uh, obviously, it's the, the, uh, the mega uh, metropolitan area of the South. Um, 
but I, I think you're sort of hinting at it in a, in a pro sports realm, right? There's a sort of a, a almost a, a synonymous belief of, of uh, civic leaders, not just in Atlanta, but in cities elsewhere. So I think maybe perhaps started by baseball that to connote uh, major league status as a city, one needed at least a major league sports franchise and until maybe the 1960s when the AFL got going at the NFL that was really major league baseball that won it absolutely and Atlanta civic leaders were explicit about this they had a mayor named Ivan Allen who was elected in 1961 and his platform had a major plank called major league city which was focused on building what became Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and the Omni Coliseum the primary focus though was big league baseball because even though the NFL during the 1960s and, and along with the AFL are starting to, uh, I guess, take leadership as the nation's most popular sport, baseball still has a mystique and prestige in that time period, probably to an extent that it doesn't now, as being the most culturally significant of the major pro sports. And they saw getting the Braves as the, I guess, the, the what would be the the, the punctuation of their success at becoming a big league town. It was the one they aspired to most explicitly, the one they fought for the hardest, the one they spent a year in court fighting with the city of Milwaukee over for control of the Braves franchise. So yes, big league baseball is the, in many ways over the course of the story, the Braves take the biggest, um, I guess, take the brunt of the attack from the loserville designation because they're the first pro sports team in town. They're the one playing the national national pastime they're playing 162 dates a year so they're just out there every single day representing the city and its uh, new professional sports um, empire so they certainly face this most most explicitly so this Ivan Allen character the mayor he ultimately became mayor uh, and, and sort of was the sort of the driving force behind all this was was this his idea and and, and others rallied behind it or was it kind of vice versa and he was just sort of tapping into a vein of civic leaders generally that sort of wanted Atlanta to become truly more cosmopolitan, metropolitan, and quote-unquote major through baseball. Ivan Allen was certainly the straw that stirred the drink. I mean, he was the head of the Chamber of Commerce, and there certainly were like-minded people in it, but there had been civic boosters in Atlanta for decades, but they never focused on this explicitly. Part of the reason was the previous mayor, William Hartsfield, who was mayor for roughly a quarter century, from the late 1930s through the early 1960s was very focused on trying to bring in investment from other parts of the country. But he viewed pro sports as being beyond the legitimate functions of government. His focus was certainly on building the airport, which now uh, bears his name and played a major role in Atlanta, taking on this new national uh, role uh, as, as an economic center. But it's, it's Allen who pushes, pushes more into this cultural realm for building Atlanta a, a national identity and brand. All right. So the sort of parallel question to that is, uh, which came first, the Braves and I think the Falcons actually the same year or the stadium? Uh, we've seen this story play out in multiple manners where it's franchise gets uh, acquired or, or granted first and then the, the scramble uh, to create either a temporary location and then a, a a permanent location or vice versa, building on the hopes that something's going to come, the, the proverbial, if they build it, they will come. It really starts with, with the Braves, the, the promise of them coming to town. The, the owners of the Milwaukee Braves in October uh, of 63 
um, agree that they're going to move out of town uh, eventually out of Milwaukee. There's a court injunction that ends up keeping them in town through 65. But Atlanta, the minute they it's, they secretly sign a contract with the um, with the the Milwaukee Braves, they get to work on this and they build Atlanta Stadium in 51 weeks, which is by far the fastest of any stadium in this generation. You look at the Superdome in New Orleans, that took three years. You look at the Astrodome, that took nearly three years as well. Bush Stadium in St. Louis took roughly that time period. Atlanta kind of did a a bit of a cob job on the stadium just to get it up as quickly as they possibly could. It proved to be a a hurry-up-and-wait scenario, though, because legal injunctions put in place by Milwaukee County forced the Braves to uh, to um, live up to the final year on their lease in town. So Atlanta rushed to get the stadium going. But by triggering that building process, they also are able to sign the Falcons. Atlanta had been pushing, various groups in Atlanta had been pushing for several years to try to get an NFL team, but there really wasn't a suitable stadium. The only thing close was Georgia Tech's Grant Field, which later becomes Bobby Dodd Stadium, and Georgia Tech really wasn't interested in being associated with pro sports at the time. Georgia Tech football, they viewed as being the signature attraction, not some pro team who was going to come in. But once Atlanta Stadium is under construction, the the city of Atlanta gets to gets to determine whether or not they want an AFL or an NFL franchise because different leadership groups in the city get offered both uh, both franchises. They they end up picking an NFL team, which hindsight being twenty twenty may not have been the best choice because they end up entering what is probably the harder league. They end up in a division with the Colts, with the Packers. Uh, they end up picking from a very weak expansion draft from a much lesser field of players because the AFL has so much of the additional available talent out there. Um, so building the stadium really uh, is a product of the Braves, but it ends up triggering the process for the Falcons as well. Do, do I have this right, though, that, that, that the um, – uh... There was sort of some shenanigans or some at least some cloaking, I guess, of the Braves being the franchise as this stadium was bandied about. Um, from what I understand, I think through some of the stuff that you wrote in the book, um, it, it was sort of a uh, Alan had somehow figured out or had uh, made an arrangement somewhat in secret that there was a club interested if only a stadium could be developed. Well, there were. There were, there were several clubs initially in, uh, involved. This whole process starts a couple of years earlier when Charlie Finley gets disgruntled with his stadium situation in Kansas City. Wait a minute. Charlie Finley, Finley being disgruntled about something? Uh, hard to believe. The minute he bought the, he bought the A's, uh, it, 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 his conflict with the uh, local government and local media in Kansas City was, was pretty immediate. He is friends with Furman Bisher, who is the head of the uh, – the, the, um, the Atlanta Journal sports editor, and the two of them hatch a plan basically to get him to move the A's to town. He he visits Atlanta, certainly not in secret. All the civic leaders uh, meet with him. There's pictures of Charlie Finley in the newspaper, and Charlie Finley it picks out the spot where Atlanta Stadium ends up being located. He he picks up he picks a spot just south of downtown Atlanta near an inter- interchange that involves 32 different lanes of highways. He figured the whole South converges on this location. We should build the stadium there. So Finley eventually does not get American League approval, though. The other owners don't really want to waste this juicy market on a retread owner who's also a, a, a curmudgeon and a, a troublesome character as well. They want to save it for a a, a, a better ownership group. Uh, it ends up being the, the Braves in the National League, though, who end up getting it. The Indians considered going there briefly. 
Um, a couple of other teams talked uh, talked a little bit with Atlanta as well, but the the Braves became very enamored. Their leadership with the idea of this basically seven state market that was all theirs in the southeast, this huge media market in particular that enabled them out of the gate to have over a hundred affiliates for their radio network. Well, yeah, regionally for sure, right? It's basically the gateway to the south, and and you have to remember in the mid '60s, right? Uh, they're they're those that territory, quote unquote. I mean, I think on the football side, right? I, if I if memory serves, I think the Washington, uh, formerly known as or the Washington football team, uh, essentially kind of claimed uh, the South as basically being their their regional market because there wasn't anything, you know, and because New, New Orleans hadn't even come around till a couple of years even after the Falcons did, et cetera. Yes, yeah, I mean, essentially between Texas, where you have where you have you got Dallas and you got the Houston team. And Washington, D.C., you have this huge swath of territory with no uh, pro football at this time period. Certainly, you had the SEC, the ACC, and high school football to contend with, which proved a lot more difficult uh, than the Falcons initially realized. For many fans in the region, the Sunday game was the third most significant game of the weekend for them, behind the Friday night high school game and then whichever college team they followed on Saturday. And this proved a very difficult uh, situation for the Falcons to break out of. And I would argue they're still in the shadow of this to some extent. All right. So, so let's talk about then the, uh, you know, the, the, just the appearance of two major league teams in 1966, really literally on the back of a stadium that, that itself didn't get uh, opened up until April of 1965. And then that was only the ground was broken literally of April of, of 64. So literally from 1964 yes. until opening days in 1966. I mean, you're talking about one gigantic head of steam uh, and all of a sudden Atlanta being on the map big time with the two major outdoor franchises. Um, so what's the reality check after the um, I don't know, after the the party is over and the the, the teams arrive uh Give us a sense of how the Braves and Falcons start to root themselves. I think you gave a hint on the Falcons, but the Braves were already existing. They were an existing franchise, right? So well, lo- I think they have a head start. A lot of people thought the Braves were going to win the NL pennant in 1966. They'd been a major contender in 65. They struggled out of the gate. They end up playing well down the stretch, but this certainly hurts attendance. If you look at the 1953 Milwaukee Braves, the first uh, Milwaukee, the first uh, Braves team that had moved from Boston, they drew more than 1.8 million fans. The Atlanta Braves drew drawn nearly half a million fewer fans to that uh, into Atlanta um, uh, 13 years later. So uh, some people view this as being very much a disappointment. And this proved to be the high point of attendance until I believe 1982 was when they when they actually surpassed that. The attendance just kept going down and down and down and down. Even when they had good little spurts in '69 when they win the division, uh, the Hank Aaron home run chase. The Braves' attendance was 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 went from being disappointing to dreadful over time. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, but they never really gained the foothold they thought they were going to in the region. The Falcons in year one started having a major issue with fans leaving at halftime because they were so far behind all the time. I mean, they lost four different games by at least 30 points at home, and they had a tough time keeping uh, keeping the home fan base in, in place as a result of it. Um, they had issues with fans basically just wanting to go see Johnny Unitas or Bart Starr or whomever the, the visiting attraction was. But uh, once people were done seeing that, um, building a durable fan base proved very difficult for them. 
So I mean, why do you think? I mean, you'd think that that the city would be uh, all embracing of uh, uh, it just, you know a seemingly overnight major league status. I mean, despite the quality of the teams, and frankly, they should recognize too, right? That uh, yeah, we weren't even in the era yet where you could literally buy your way to uh, competitiveness really quickly early on. It was still very much a a process and, you know, you draft picks and, and lots of rookies and all that kind of stuff, uh, at least on the Falcons side. Why do you think fans kind of were, I don't know, somewhat blasé in terms of attendance for these franchises? You'd think with all the excitement of a brand new stadium, two brand new franchises, major league status. Um, what do you think? Is it, is it uh, transportation? Is it uh, economic uh, uh, underestimation or overestimation. Um, oh, it's, it's that and a lot. It's that and a lot of other things. I think first of all, you have a city with a tremendous number of transplants in it. So just because there's a team a few miles from your house with Atlanta across their chest doesn't mean that the local fan base is going to necessarily embrace them. From day one, there's the issue of when Philadelphia or New York or Chicago or Boston visits. Lots of fans cheering for the other teams when they're playing. Um, it, does, it doesn't matter which of the four sports this was. This phenomenon happened over and over again for them. So you have a lot of fans who are not necessarily going to be committed to the Atlanta teams. They're committed to where they're from. In terms of long-term local fans, it's not like they, they didn't have sporting passions before the big leagues got to town. College football was certainly king in the region. You had stock car racing. You had golf. You had professional wrestling drew incredibly great crowds. In, in Atlanta during during this time period. So people were not starved for sports entertainment and they they embraced they continued to embrace all of these other attractions as well as Atlanta having great weather for much of the years. So you have to compete with um, just the opportunities for outdoor recreation, whether it's boating or going for a picnic or just particularly in such a suburban city, people choosing to spend their free time far from the city limits um, being being an issue as well. So being uh, becoming this 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 mass attraction proved very difficult when there were a lot of other competing entertainments and I guess competing lifestyle preferences in the region. And and their on field performances, um, the Falcons largely dealing with the fact that they were the last to draft and 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 that kind of they had it's, you know it's an expansion franchise right, mm-hmm. and the Braves seemingly underperformed just because. I because why maybe because they they were so used to playing in Milwaukee was it uh, a different uh, environment in the in the in, in Fulton County Stadium what do you think the why do you think the performance was not as I don't know two expectations early on well I think Fulton County Stadium tended to exaggerate the strengths of the Braves and also exaggerate their weaknesses this was a team that came in with tons of hitting whether it was Aaron or Matthews or Rico Cardi or Alou or Joe Torre. They had lots of great hitters. But beyond Tony Cloninger, a fairly weak staff when they got to town. Eventually, they developed Phil Necro and Ron Reed and some other fine pitchers. But uh, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium quickly develops the reputation as the launching pad. The Braves hit a lot of home runs in that. It, it's, it, it was the highest elevation city before, uh, before Denver joins the big league with the Rockies. So it was, it was hot. It was humid. It was high elevation. The ball carried very well. The Braves often led the league in home runs. They also led the league in home runs allowed. So the Braves had were a very good offensive team, but they tended to have weak pitching throughout their uh, throughout their their early years in town. Uh, and eventually, as many of those stars get older, the team struggles increasingly uh, on the field. Um, so I guess that was their big issue with the Falcons. They just had a had a major uh, 
uh, talent deficit early on, and it was it took them many years to recover from that. Okay, but it, but it's certainly the, the arrival of these two teams and the stadium, right? Are clearly uh, is a major exclamation point in Atlanta's uh, evolving and, and modernizing uh, history, right? Because mm-hmm. on the sports front, right, the floodgates start to open. You had uh, a moderately or modestly successful, or at least intriguing, Atlanta Chiefs soccer franchise that you know uh, sort of took advantage of 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 the new stadium, and then you had two legit big four uh, teams on the indoor front, the Hawks moving from St. Louis and temporary do- temporarily domiciling themselves for a few years. And then the Atlanta flames coming in uh, uh, in 72, when the Hawks moved as well to the Omni. Um, let's put it this way. I guess the momentum was there. It's like, I, you'd think that some of the signals or the signs, if you're going to be a future sports team owner in Atlanta might've been kind of on the wall already, but it didn't seem to stop people from throwing any new sports franchise down Atlanta's uh, Atlanta's way. It was, uh, you know, it didn't seem like there was any lack of enthusiasm for at least domiciling franchises in the major leagues. Well, in 1969, 1970, you start seeing this phrase over sports appearing in this, in the local sports sections in Atlanta. There's just too many games to follow. People only have so much time. They only have so much discretionary income. I mean, compare that to now. Compared to now, it's 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 very minimal. But in that context, I think people found it tough to keep up with everything that's going on, figuring out which teams you wanted to follow. And it, none of them ended up quite working out as expected. The Chiefs are a very interesting key case study, though, because they're arguably one of the most successful uh, uh, professional soccer franchises in America in the era. They win the championship in 67, their second... Uh, uh, year in town, and uh, the the coach Phil Woosnam ends up becoming the commissioner of the NASL. So it's it's despite the league having a lot of financial struggles, this is a franchise that does fairly well. They draw on average a little under f- five thousand fans per game throughout their history. Eventually, financially, they succumb as most of the franchises in that league did. But uh, soccer actually had a pretty good turn in Atlanta, particularly as a participatory event. Um, when the Chiefs come to town, the state of Georgia holds a soccer week in 1967. To it's it's 68 when the Chiefs win the championship, not 67. It's in 67 they hold a soccer week in June 67, and Atlanta goes from having roughly 200 amateur soccer players to more than 25,000 in one week. And Atlanta had ended up having a very strong tradition of youth soccer as a result of this. So even if the Chiefs themselves were not a long-term box office success. They, they certainly brought the sport to the region where it continues to thrive as an amateur activity. Um, in terms of the other teams, the Hawks just never really caught on in town. I mean, it's really not until the 1980s when the Hawks generate a, a strong and consistent fan base to go with the strong product they had in the latter half of the decade. In the case of the Flames, they were very much a novel attraction in town. In some ways, I would argue in their early years, they're the most successful franchise in town. They take a sport that almost nobody in Atlanta had ever seen before and immediately are a middle-of-the-pack drawing team in the NHL. Uh, going to a Flames game becomes sort of uh, the go-to upscale evening out for affluent Atlantans. It's like going to the theater or something for them. They really don't know what's going on, but they see it as being a very enjoyable attraction in the kind of plush theater seats of the Omni Coliseum. It's, it's a great evening out or a great start to an evening out in downtown Atlanta. And the Flames also performed pretty well. Their GM, Cliff Fletcher, had been the protege of Sam Pollock, 
the Montreal Canadiens general manager, and did a very good job uh, building a defense-first team that uh, ended up having winning records in six of their eight years in Atlanta. The Flames end up leaving town less because of their either on-ice success or success at the box office than the uh, real estate troubles of their owner, Tom Cousins, who had built a massive real estate empire in downtown Atlanta and was starting to uh, struggle through a series of bankruptcies. Um, This provided him with some flexibility selling this franchise to investors in Alberta for more than two and a half times what he bought the franchise eight years earlier in 1972. Yeah, we we talked to Dan Bouchard on uh, our episode number 148. And uh, did he he have a few uh, uh, choice words for uh, that? uh, all of it, uh, and the, the, the various in- intrigue around how that, uh, franchise was run and, and, and ultimately moved and all the other shenanigans behind the scenes at the NHL corporate level. But, um, but let me, let me back up for the Chiefs for a second, because we've had many conversations with folks in the soccer realm as well, uh, especially some of those who play like Paul Child and some others, uh, in the Atlanta sort of Chiefs environment. And the one thing that stucks is stucks sticks out or stuck out from those conversations, I guess, almost to a person. And frankly, I think this is around the league in the early years as well, but particularly in Atlanta, and I've seen the photographic evidence of this, was that grassroots sort of connection. Now, I know Luznam really had it in mind as 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 one of the sort of tenets of how to market the game in the country. It was it was almost like these players and the Chiefs in particular, um, whether they wanted to or not, I think most of them did want to. Uh, engage with the community uh, to to kind of really, you know, uh, proselytize, if you will, and, and and sell the game, if you will, right, on the youth level and and all those other levels, right, to encourage people to uh, not only just come to a game maybe once a week or a couple of times a season, but, you know, kind of sort of get into sort of the the overall structure and lifestyle and the the fun of the sport generally. And, and if that means playing or, or or doing some other things in and around, coming out to your, your local NASL game, so be it. Oh, certainly. I, I think one thing that's interesting about the Chiefs is I gather they had a fairly large female fan base. And I think part of it is these are well-coiffed, um, you know, they're exotic, they're European guys, they're, they're, they're well-spoken, many of them, they're worldly, um, they're, they're, they're great athletes. They became an attraction in that sense, too. And I think you look at a city like Atlanta, which certainly developed a greater international profile over time, but this is not New York. This is not Los Angeles. It's not Washington. This is not a city that had a lot of international travelers coming to it at that time period. Atlanta had a big airport, but this is mostly people transferring on a bunch of domestic flights. Having this group of kind of cosmopolitan young athletes in town was in itself a great attraction for a lot of people. And I think part of the great fan appeal they developed was in part because it was such an unusual thing for people in in, in the Southeast to experience this these, these kind of athletes that they that they met with the uh, Chiefs. So well, let me get into the Hawks situation then, because in some respects, they, you know, obviously without, I, I think the Hawks really figuratively opened the door for um, the Flames to come as well. And obviously Tom Cousins involved in both of those, uh, in both of those franchises, as well as the arena, the Omni that they wound up playing in circa 72. Um but you're kind of I, I guess the point is, if, as the Hawks don't really take in their early years and really not even until the 80s, what, what was it that uh, sort of was who who got who, I guess? Uh, was it Atlanta looking for an, uh, an NBA franchise or was it uh, the roving eye again of another of another owner? I suspect that St. Louis was was uh, uh, looking for other cities to relocate the Hawks to. 
Um, but it, it, it sounds to me like what you're describing in the late sixties wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, a, a, a thirsty, uh, city for yet another pro sport per se or well, basketball in particular. Yeah. Basketball did not have a strong tradition in Atlanta relative to, to certainly baseball or, or football. In the case of the Hawks, you had Ben Kerner, who'd been the only owner in the history of the Hawks uh, from the 1940s onward. Um, he starts to struggle attendance-wise in St. Louis for a bunch of reasons. You have the Blues coming in and competing with them in the winter. You have, I mean, part of it, there's certainly a strong racial component to what happened in St. Louis, too. This was a team that had a very strongly urban white ethnic blue collar fan base in St. Louis and the Hawks over time evolved from being a team that was kind of largely a team of white Southerners to being a team that was almost exclusively African-American by the late 1960s. And that corresponded with an attendance, a significant attendance fall there. Even though the Hawks in 67, 68 are an excellent team, they win the Western division in the regular season. Um, there's a, there's a huge fan base drop off in part because of that in St. Louis and Kerner's dealing with some health problems and wants to, basically get a cash in on on his franchise he's looking around and he encounters tom cousins who's looking to build an arena in downtown atlanta and needs some attractions there pro basketball becomes the first attraction he seeks out for his arena tom cousins freely admitted the only basketball player he'd ever heard of was wilt chamberlain when he bought the hawks and in some <laughs> ways that kind of showed i mean he ends up get, i mean he ends up with with, with Richie Gere and Marty Blake having a very good operation in place uh, initially. But uh, this is not a basketball um, lifer or a, uh, uh, a sportsman going out there seeking out a pro basketball team. He ends up bringing the Hawks to town, finds in many ways the same issue, bringing a team that had a almost exclusively black roster into Atlanta, although Atlanta was probably the most progressive city in the South. You're not just selling them to people in the city of Atlanta. You're trying to sell the team to people in the region. This is this is the South just coming out of Jim Crow. Yeah, it's a um, it's a relative statement you're saying. Yeah, relative statement certainly. Yes, and this team, despite being an excellent team, finishing second in the Western Division their first year in town, finishing first the next year. Um, basically, the the Lakers teams of of Baylor and West and Chamberlain stuff are what keep them from going to the finals. Um, they do not draw at all. So the Hawks get the idea of we need. We need this great white hope to be our star. And they end up uh, trading to get the pick that becomes Pete Maravich, who's not only a Southern white basketball star, is probably the most famous basketball or one of the handful of most famous basketball players in the country. They figure he's going to be a ma major gate attraction. He certainly is a novelty for a time, but the Hawks remain well below the league average in attendance. He's in Atlanta four years the team whose roster was basically blown up to make room for him, he ends up getting paid more than anybody else on the roster, despite it being a very accomplished club. He's paid more by a wide margin. Um, the Hawks go from being a contender to being a struggling team. They, they have losing records in two of Maravich's four years in town, and the novelty of Maravich wears off quickly. Not on the road, though. The Hawks are the best-drawing road team in the league. In two of their four years, uh, in two of Maravich's four years in town, they're number two to the Celtics the other two years. But the Hawks just struggle with attendance year after year. Um, one issue the Hawks faced when they played at home on Friday night was they had to compete with pro wrestling on Friday night, which was played in a city armory that was built during the Cleveland administration. It was a 5,000-seat standing-room-only arena that only occasionally had air conditioning. And that frequently outdrew the Hawks on Friday night playing at the Omni starting in 72 with Pete Maravich being featured. So 
this regional attraction outdrew this national attraction that was in town. And Maravich never really gets along with the coaches there. First Richie Guerin and then Cotton Fitzsimmons. And they end up uh, trading him to uh, to New Orleans at the uh, the first chance they get. So that certainly fails. And then the Hawks kind of linger in town for a number of years. Ted Turner ends up buying them and basically keeping them, as well as the Braves, who he also buys in the mid-'70s, as um, cheap programming for his new TBS Superstation. And that's essentially what keeps both the Hawks and Braves franchises in town, is having Turner as both kind of a civic capitalist and also just the um, – tender of pro sports in the city so that he can have them for his network to go alongside episodes of Andy of Mayberry and, uh, and old movies. All right. But before Turner though, two you're talking about late sixties, early seventies, and now we're going to add a, a hockey team on top of all of that, given the, the relative, uh, I don't know, uninspired uh, attendances and, and it seems like fast creeping malaise. Um, how, how does a Flames NHL franchise come about? Like, how how is that seen to be? I don't know the the answer to the pro sports woes of Atlanta at the time. Seventy two. Well, it's it's sort of a marriage of convenience between Cousins, who needs to fill up more dates on the calendar of his new arena, which he's responsible for the payment of it. The city of Atlanta did a very good job negotiating the Omni Coliseum. The, the mayor, Sam Massell, had a background in real estate law and did a much better job negotiating that stadium for that venue than Atlanta Fulton County Stadium was, which was paid for with property taxes, a way that nobody pays for stadiums anymore. Um, Cousins was essentially on the hook for everything with the financing deal they ended up putting in place. So Cousins needs more attractions for the calendar at the Omni. Um, he, he gets in contact with the NHL who's facing competition from the World Hockey Association. There's this sudden competition for all these new markets for pro hockey. And uh, the NHL wanted access to Atlanta because it was such a big uh, market in the Southeast. Atlanta had no indoor skating rink at the time they got an NHL team. The closest professional hockey team ever geographically had been a team in Knoxville that went out of business in 1968. So there was no connection to hockey whatsoever. I mean, it's essentially like uh, the NHL and the World Hockey Association were playing a game of risk with the North American continent, just seeking territory for its own sake. Um, It actually works out surprisingly well uh, in the case of the Flames because they are a well-marketed team. They do a good job marketing the team as uh, what they called Atlanta's Ice Society, that they marketed as being this upscale, upmarket consumer good. And for the residents of Atlanta's affluent north side, this became a very popular attraction almost immediately, one of the go-to date nights in the city. It didn't hurt that the Flames were almost good, were good almost immediately. With, with Dan Bill Bouchard, who he mentioned, and Phil Meyer, they had very good goaltenders. They, they played tough defense, and they were almost immediately a playoff team. Uh, at one point, they had nearly 10,000 season ticket sales. They were above average in attendance in several seasons. So, so hockey went incredibly well because it was the, I guess, the fashionable set in town that, that embraced it as the beginning to an evening in downtown Atlanta. Okay, so I, I have a lot of specific questions, but let me just sort of maybe package them up into this. When does this malaise, I used the word earlier, I should have saved it for now, but when does the general sort of pro sports malaise start to kind of become... Uh, common, I guess. And, and uh, that quote from, from, you know, from your, your, the title of your book and, and 
Because I, you know, as I remember growing up, I mean, most of the t- most of the time, uh, any pro team was playing Atlanta. It did sort of feel like, oh, you know, a, a middling club, probably at best. Um, but but w- when does it become sort of self reinforcing, right? I mean, is it just bad and or dumb luck that uh, these franchises were not sort of gigantic successes either out of the gate or over time, uh, and they're on field or on court or ice performances, um, you know, uh, no real championships to speak of per se during this period of time. Um, when do people start to kind of, I don't know, pile on and start to say, you know, why are we doing this? And, 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 um, I, cause in many respects, you could, you could think that Atlanta is still a growing city. It's very vibrant. Uh, you're adding all these teams. It seems like there's a lot of momentum. People still might be very hopeful for the future, but it just doesn't sound like, at least in the early 70s, that Atlanta was as sporting a town as it conceivably should have been, being one of the, frankly, one of the only major metropolitan areas in all four major sports. Yeah, I think they were one of nine when they when they got the uh, Flames in 72. I guess it made them the ninth one. I would say that by 1968, that's the case. Um, right after opening day of 68, when the Braves draw 11,000 people for opening day, two years after drawing 47,000, I think it was, uh, Furman Bisher, the Atlanta Journal's uh, sports editor, asks why, and he gets thousands of letters from people explaining why they didn't go to opening day this year, whereas they wanted to go to it or did go to it the previous year. People talk about not liking to deal with the traffic. They talk about they thought the ushers were rude. They talk about the team not being very good. They talk about it being unseasonably hot that day. They talk about it being during Easter weekend. People have innumerable reasons why they don't want to go. But the one thing that's clear is that you have a wide consensus in the region that there are a lot better things to do than go to a Braves game by April of 68, two years of after the team gets to town. In 68, they barely cracked the million fan mark just two years after coming to town. And 19, by 1970, they aren't cracking the million fan mark anymore, and they don't again until 1980. Um, the Braves are the worst drawing team in Major League Baseball of the 1970s um, on average per season. Um, in 68, also, you have the Falcons who fire their first coach, Norb Hecker, who is a uh, protege of Vince Lombardi, who coaches them for two seasons, which are they win three games in their first two seasons. They start out one and six, and then Hecker gets fired a halfway into his third year. So by October 68, he's gone as well. Um, that's also when the Hawks start in, in October of 68, and they barely draw 3,000 fans to their first game. Uh, in town. And the primary thing people noticed about it was that there was leaking onto the floor from the ceiling of the Alexander Memorial Coliseum at Georgia Tech. So there was almost immediate cynicism toward the Hawks, even though they were a good team. So clearly within basically two calendar years of them getting to town, there was this narrative of, oh, it's the same old Atlanta teams. And it's something that followed them for many, many years and in some ways still does follow Atlanta's franchises. Although the idea that it's a loserville anymore is certainly uh, they've certainly moved beyond that, at least in terms of their performance. No, I agree with that. But it, it does feel almost a, a sort of an era of provincialism. Uh, and, I, you know, it's and I wonder, is it because of the uh, somewhat sort of uh, nascent uh, modern nature of the Atlanta metropolitan area at that time, meaning it, it was growing so quickly and really hadn't uh I don't know, backfilled, if you will, with all the sort of more 
uh, structural and economic and, and societal uh, kinds of, of things that would sort of make uh, the sports, you know, a rich sports franchise um, environment uh, more supported and more regular and more uh, connected to the community. Uh, well, I mean, you, you're mentioning other distractions and stuff. How about the regionality of it, right? I mean, you know, it's still, uh, it was a driving culture. I don't think MARTA had been uh, sort of put in place by then uh, either. No, I mean, that, I mean, part of it, I would say structurally, the issue is how suburban the region is. The voters in, in suburban Atlanta fight MARTA tooth and nail for a wide range of reasons, some of which are merely people didn't want to use it. Other ones are they're, they're kind of, I, I guess you would call them um, uh, racial animus to some extent. Uh, in certain instances, you know, fear, fear mongering in many ways uh, in terms of uh, that played a role in keeping MARTA at a certain places as well. Um, and it's, it's, it's an issue that continues to this day, and it's uh, been limited in its expansion. In a broader sense, in terms of the suburbanizing, um, I'd say if you think of this region, which is a profoundly suburban one, one thing suburbanites have always been good at is being consumers. And in terms of their re- relationship to these themes, they related to them not as d- devotees, not as loyalists. They related to them as consumers. Uh, and they were very discerning. These were not a good product, so they chose not to buy it. Um, the idea that you're going to come into the city specifically to watch these bad teams, to sweat it out on a 95-degree humid night at Atlanta Stadium, that didn't sound appealing to a lot of people in the region. So in terms of um, in terms of the structural things, I think the profoundly suburban nature of Atlanta played a major role in it, uh, uh, the lack of success of its teams, which were struggling on the field as well. What what turned it around? Uh, you mentioned Ted Turner. I think maybe the uh, the the casual fan would say he was kind of the savior in that he uh, bought uh, a couple of the franchises. He brought back uh, a new Atlanta Chiefs franchise in the NASL. He had uh, this uh, super station that he was looking to fill with programming and and you know turn his franchises essentially into de facto national teams because of of the superstation's reach as cable itself was fledgling at the time, or is that too simplistic a, um, an analysis? I think that's a huge part of it. I, I, th- I think individuals often move history. And I think in this case, Ted Turner certainly does. The Braves may well have ended up moving to Toronto where they had a deal in place. They also had a possible deal to play half their games at the Superdome in new Orleans. So Ted Turner is certainly the force that keeps the Braves in town. And Tom Cousins sold his other franchise, the Hawks, I mean, of the Flames. There's no reason he couldn't have sold the Hawks as well. The Falcons would have likely remained in town because the Smiths were, for their lack of success in terms of operating organization, they proved to be very devoted to the community and were very good uh, community uh, community members as franchise owners. Um, in terms of what else turned it around, um, I, I think people particularly for people who had just moved to the region being there for a significantly longer period of time once you had your children grew up there these became the, the the teams of many of these people i think a major factor in atlanta particularly for the expansion of the fan base of the hawks and falcons was the expansion of atlanta's black middle class particularly in the 1970s um the uh atlanta developing its its uh, reputation as being this uh entrepreneurial center for 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 black america uh with so many uh uh with the expansion of the black middle class in atlanta this provided a lot more potential fans for both the 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 live fans for both the hawks 
as well as the Falcons um, among people who were uh, fans of those sports. Uh, so I, th- I think that plays a role too. I mean, particularly in the 1980s with the, with the Hawks, this is the case um, with the, the Dominique Wilkins, Spud Webb, Mike Fratello era of, of the Hawks. They're a very exciting team and they bring in a lot of new people to, uh, to support them. And there are a lot of people who were basketball fans who were newly available to uh, have the discretionary income to attend such games who chose to do so. Um, I think with the, with the Falcons, if you look particularly, particularly beginning in the early 1990s, the team becomes strongly identified with Deion Sanders, with Andre Risen, who becomes strongly associated with not only hip hop culture, but youth culture more generally. And it, and it makes them a more attractive franchise. The Falcons would kind of just been in the doldrums for a, for a quarter century. Um, so I, I think those played a, that played a major role in Atlanta's success as well in terms of becoming a uh, a, a stronger um, sporting market, particularly at the box office. How about the um, how about the facilities as part of that? Uh, Atlanta Fulton County lasted for uh, quite a long time, despite the speed of its uh, of its creation, and the, and then the Georgia Dome essentially becoming um, the Falcons' uh, uh, place of domicile. Obviously the uh, the inventive Turner Field uh, evolving out of the uh, construction around the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Um, that's sort of an inventive solution. But but both of those next generation solutions, if you will, for at least those clubs, um, and the Omni obviously was not sort of uh, uh, didn't get its chance until, uh, frankly, years after the uh, the Olympics for for its new stadium. Um those are still located essentially in the downtown area, though. So that doesn't necessarily solve the destination problem. Um, or does that not matter as much as the urban core is becoming more uh, developed and perhaps more diversified and, and, and that kind of stuff? I, I know I'm oversimplifying that, but um, I, I guess where I'm leading up to is maybe you could fast forward to today. Truest field, right? Mm-hmm. Where the Braves are playing uh, in the in the in the World Series uh, after a long drought since 1999 now, um, is ostensibly a suburban and a northern suburbs, uh, almost office park setting, right? I mean, you were talking before about how the suburbanites, you know, will spend the money. Well, I think a lot of people, especially from the outside, would say, "Wow, the Braves moved outside of Atlanta proper per se to the northern suburbs," right? And and Boy, that's a real statement, right? I mean, whether it's economically wise or not, it certainly seems to be a statement about the metropolitan area being we're going to go where the money is and maybe, you know, the heck with the maybe the, the rest of the outliers because we got to do what we got to do to stay uh, stay alive and be financially successful. Anyway, so there's a well, question or two in there somewhere. Yeah, well, yeah. So when the Braves started making noises about moving out of Turner Field, in 2012, they released a map of their season ticket holder base, and it was largely in the northern suburbs. So, in many ways, they end up following where where the fans were uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of their support. So, I, I think yes, it's an extension of that. I kind of wonder if the whole Olympic phenomenon had not happened, would a move to the suburbs have happened earlier? And I think that's quite possible in the case of the Braves because the fan base was out there already. It's not just a phenomenon of the of the past decade or something. Really, since the Braves redeveloped into a team of, of of significance nationally and also in terms of having a broad support, a lot of that support was in the suburbs. So I, I think it may well have happened in an earlier time period. Uh, so in, in its own way, Turner Field was kind of a kind of a stopgap. 
And when the Braves end up make negotiating in secret for what becomes their new stadium, the city of Atlanta basically was ho-hum about it. The, the, the mayor at the time was a guy named Kasim Reed, and he was basically like, my constituency is, is not interested in investing the kind of money they're looking for to build a new stadium when you have a stadium that's barely 20 years old sitting there. So he was very pragmatic about it. And I think one thing is over time, Atlanta's leaders have been become more pragmatic about stadium development. This was certainly the case with, with the Georgia Dome when, when city leaders got a guarantee uh, in terms of the uh, contractors for the stadium that at least 30, uh, 30% of the contractors would be minority contractors. So that's certainly for the, the political constituency in the city of Atlanta was, was a very pragmatic uh, approach to that as well. There were similar deals in place with Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Also, in terms of the financial contribution of the city to those stadiums, the city got a lot better in terms of not making the same level of contributions they had in previous eras. I mean, with with Mercedes-Benz Stadium, I mean, the city ends up investing hundreds of millions of dollars. But as a percentage of stadium development, it is is a much smaller number than it would have been in an earlier generation. Arthur Blank and and his, his operation ends up paying for the majority of, uh, of that facility. So Atlanta does a pretty good job negotiating compared to many other cities uh, in, in the stadium game in recent years. All right. A couple, couple of questions just to wrap up here. So, so let's talk about hockey specifically for a second. What is it about hockey, the flames, and then, then the thrashers and now nobody, right. I said, I mean, I, I, no disrespect to minor league hockey, but uh, what is it specifically about hockey and in your mind, do you think Atlanta is now more ready than ever for a third go round, especially when you look at the just completely shocking success of a Las Vegas franchise in the NHL and and maybe to nobody's surprise or maybe the similarly surprise in, in Seattle so far? You know, I, I hope Atlanta is very deliberate if they if they ever strongly pursue the NHL again. I mean, the Thrashers experiment didn't go well. I mean, there was there was ownership issues. I think there's also the issue of being surrounded by a bunch of other NHL teams in the region now, too. The novelty had kind of worn off by the time the Thrashers were around. And they again, the price is right for a move to Canada and they have they eventually end up taking it. So I, I think unless the whoever the ownership group is is first of all a hockey centric ownership group and they can develop a very strong season ticket base and also find a way to get to a casual fan base i i think hockey may have a third a third failure in atlanta and in some ways i would suggest the flames weren't really a failure they were they moved but in the time they were there they were quite successful uh, and when they did move, the people who were their fans put up a big stink about it. The Keep a Hockey, Hockey a Southern Sports signs were seen across the metro area. There was a large gathering of fans to protest the move. So it's not like the the Flames went without a whimper. They certainly did have local support. There just wasn't a local buyer for the franchise. Um, so, I, yeah, I, ho- I hope Atlanta thinks uh, and its, its leaders think long before they, they get back into hockey, though. All right, but on the on the other side of the coin, though, explain to me uh, in in uh, from your perspective, especially having having written this book and, and having sort of uh, toiled through sort of the early uh, pro history and the malaise, if you will, around such in Atlanta. Uh, I would suggest strongly that uh, not unlike the uh, the Golden Knights in Las Vegas, just kind of literally coming out of nowhere and just blowing the doors off of any expectation in their arrival in the NHL, you could absolutely say the same for Atlanta United in Major League Soccer. I don't think, and I'm a big soccer fan, I've been following the league for a long, long time, 
I don't think anybody saw the just the level of success so quickly coming from from a city that itself had had a not so you know dramatically successful run with soccer in the years prior. Oh, that's a great point. I, I could see that I mean, the, the Atlanta United, in many ways, are a great surprise, and and the popular support there has been remarkable. I think. Arthur Blank has vi- provided very steady ownership for that organization and a lot of support for soccer in the region. In some ways, I think they're building off a nascent interest in the sport that's existed in the region for 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 some time. So, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, it certainly is a, a surprise the degree of success they've had, uh, and and I guess that that could happen with hockey there again too if, if tried again. I, I, I hope it does if it in fact happens. All right. I guess the last question to wrap up, what, give me a sense of what you think the future of pro sports looks like in Atlanta. Obviously we're in a different realm these days. I mean, pro sports is just, it's, is beyond big business now with private equity getting involved and, and it's just, it's taking on a whole nother level. And, and maybe I, you know, I, I think some of, some of those things, it's not going to be forever. I think some of those things may wind up catching up with, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar franchises and, and God knows what happens with gambling and, uh, and all these other kinds of things that I think people are just, uh, uh, kind of taking a blind eye to because it's relatively easy money and, uh, all, you know, everybody looks like a genius when, when the, when the market's going up. But, um, having sort of polluted the question already, what, what, what's your sense of, of Atlanta's, um, abilities, capabilities and, um, and fandom in supporting pro sports going forward. I, I, it feels to me like, and again, you look at like Atlanta United in particular, uh, that it's, it's probably as strong as it's ever been. Uh, or am I missing some, some cracks or some, some things on the side that uh, are just not showing themselves to me? No, I think, I think Atlanta sports are as strong as they've ever been. The situation in, in, um, with, with the Braves certainly seems to have worked out well. I mean, the team's getting a lot of support. They've been very successful on the field. The Falcons, I think, have a very strong ownership group with Arthur Blank and his family. They, they're much stronger than they were in their previous iteration. In terms of the Hawks, their ownership has changed a bunch of times. I think that's a bit of a wild card. They certainly had some, some issues with that in recent years. Uh, we'll see how things turn out long-term with that. But I, I think in terms of both on-court uh, or on-court on or on-the-field success, and support the teams, the teams seem as stable and as strong as they've ever been in the city. Um, so in terms of, uh, Atlanta being a loserville, I think it, I think it's certainly past that. I think some of the challenges it faces as a market with being a profoundly suburban region with having a strong urban suburban divide, um, having a large community of transplants, which seems to be an ever present part of the, the story of Atlanta. I think those will always pre- present themselves as challenges in the region. But uh, it, it seems like things have stabilized, at least for the time being. And um, and I guess the, it also, too, from a facilities perspective, seems quite strong and well positioned. Right. I mean, you've got uh, a smaller environment in, in, in Kennesaw State. You've got uh, Georgia Southern now taking over uh, what the Braves left behind. And mm-hmm. I guess even the. Um, geez, I forget if it was the XFL or the. Uh, Alliance of American Football. I forget which of those teams a- was a- AAF. Yeah, AAF. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Um, plus, obviously, uh, the Dome and uh, um, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and you've got uh, – it just seems like from a facilities perspective that that Atlanta is very well endowed, shall we say, for newer sports that are looking for smaller footprints as well as larger ones, too. 
Yes, I mean they certainly have a couple of the cutting edge venues in pro sports at the moment, and 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 I, they seem to be being embraced as well. So I think they're they're well positioned in that respect as well. Okay, uh, that's uh, I. You know, it's uh, I could go forever on this uh, this topic. Uh, Atlanta and uh, pro sports, so many little nooks and crannies, so many different teams and things to sort of investigate. But uh, I leave it at that. And um, the book is called Loserville: How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports uh, by our guest this week, Clayton Truder. Uh, it is published by uh, the uh, University of Nebraska Press. Uh, we think it comes out on February 1st of 2022. Uh, and we are dropping this episode far earlier than that. So if you're listening to this episode after February 1st, well, it's available. What have you been waiting for? Go get it. Uh, but of course, if you want to pre-order it, why not? I think it's a great idea. Uh, things can move up a little bit. Uh, I do believe you can get the Kindle version a little sooner uh, than February 1st. And I think, frankly, this is uh, the new reality, at least in the near term, for physical book sales as uh, post-pandemic logistics uh, life uh, kind of hopefully somehow rebounds back to normal. I do know for a fact that a lot of publishers are having a lot of problems getting books produced and distributed out there. So this is unfortunately... Uh, no exception to that, but but make a note to get this uh, this book Loserville. It's fantastic. You can pre-order it now on Amazon, probably other places as well. And of course, we love it when you go to our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Just search up this episode number two hundred and thirty-seven with Clayton Truder, and uh, you will see a convenient link uh, to the book and Amazon. Uh, and we appreciate if you buy it that way because we'll get a couple of uh, shekels or nickels of love. Uh, when you do so, referral love, we appreciate that. And I know Clayton will uh, as well. Follow Clayton, why don't you, uh, on uh, Twitter at Clayton Truder, at Clayton Truder. That's C-L-A-Y-T-O-N. Truder is T-R-U-T-O-R, at Clayton Truder. Lots of uh, uh, great stuff to follow him uh, with about there. Uh, and um, and let's see what else. Well, while you're on uh, social media, you can follow us too. Why don't you? Why don't you add us to your various feeds on Twitter? You'll find us at Good Seats Still. On uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on Facebook, you'll find a little page devoted to us there at Good Seats Still Available as well. Uh, if you want to send us some email, by all means, please do that too. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, what else? Uh, on the website, goodseatsstillavailable.com, you will also find a link to our weekly email newsletter. Uh, we'd like to give you a little tip sheet every weekend as to what the, the following week's episode is going to be about. You'll be a little bit ahead of the curve and find that out. Uh, just uh, just navigate on the site, find the link, get a, give us your, your name and your email address, and voila, you are in the mix for getting that little newsletter each and every week. Uh, Our thanks, of course, to our pal Jerry Payne, he of Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Uh, We uh, raise a a, a small little bottle of Budweiser in your general direction. Uh, This Bud's for you, Jerry, uh, as we uh, focused on Atlanta, your hometown. Hope you enjoyed it. And um, let's see. Let's send you out with some music. Yes, we always try to find a little nugget of, uh, of obscureness. 
uh, for you to uh, go out on. And uh, we're going to do that this week with how about this? How about the Atlanta Braves theme song from the from the old TBS, the old Turner Broadcasting System, the original version? It's been conglomeratized since uh, Warner Media has kind of squeezed the life out of it. But but back in the 90s, uh, when the Braves were actually uh, uh, winning uh, at least one of their, well, their only championship with Atlanta, uh, this was the theme music you heard when you turned on to watch Skip Carey and Ernie Johnson and uh, uh, Don Sutton and uh, and others call him the game. This is uh, Ed Kaihoff, or Ed Kaihoff, I think is his name, the legendary theme song uh, uh, a creator for various uh, uh, networks. At CBS, I know he's done a lot of work for, and uh, this is a track that uh, he created uh, for the old Turner Broadcasting System and the Atlanta Braves nationally televised games. Let's hope this uh, rubs off and uh, maybe brings the Braves some uh, some some further glory in the days ahead as the World Series grinds on. Until next week, everybody, take care, enjoy the games, and uh, please stay safe. We'll see you, and uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.